0: So what is your ideal mission trip? Maybe some of you, uh, your first mission trip usually is that short-term missions trip in high school, and you had some expectations of what you wanted from the mission trip. One, you wanted that cute boy from church to also come on the mission trip, right? It had to be an exotic location. Not crazy exotic, but warmer than here, right? Right? It also had to have some pretty picturesque things, right? It had to like, have the things that you can share with people like you worked on building a school together or an orphanage, right? And then also the key Instagram photo of you and a young child from another nation, right? <laughs> and it can't be all work because you got to have time also to be at the beach, enjoy the local cuisine, and do some shopping. But through it all, You've got to have some positive interactions and people just love you being there and hearing you talk about the gospel. Right? That's the ideal mission trip. As you know, I'm speaking a little tongue-in-cheek. I'm sure we can have some spirited conversations about the pros and cons of short-term missions, especially Westerners going to other places. That's for another day, right? But we are going today see another mission trip. Actually, the inaugural missionary journey of Paul. And there's going to be aspects here that are ideal. And there are parts that do not fit the ideal missionary vibe. But through the good and bad, we see in Acts 13, we need to see that neither internal or external obstacles should keep us from sharing the gospel that we're going to see, even through the positive and negative, this missionary story, that neither the internal or external obstacles should keep us from sharing the gospel. Well Let's look together, shall we? Acts chapter 13, it's printed in your worship guide. I'm going to try all these Greek city names and names, and hopefully I'll pronounce them well. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius and Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought sought to hear the word of God. But Almas the magician, for that is the um, meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and and villainy, we are just joining us, welcome. We are going through the book of Acts this winter and this spring. And uh, really, Acts is documenting 30 years after the ascension of Christ, the first 30 years of the church um, coming into formation. And we see that um, the gospel at the beginning um, is through Christ and his ascension, and then 30 years later, it goes all the way to Rome, and that's where it closes. We are here in the middle of the book. Uh, The physical middle and also the halfway in the timeline. 15 years after the ascension of Christ. And 10 years after Saul, Paul's conversion. And we see that the gospel keeps moving forward despite all the obstacles. As David preached last week, we saw the death of James, the imprisonment of Peter and his escape. And there's kind of a, a back and forth between what's happening in Jerusalem and then what's happening to the ends of the earth. And now it seems like the book is going to continue to more concentrate on the ends of the earth. We're going to go back to Jerusalem again one more time. But there's going to be predominantly what Christ has said. That the gospel will be in Jerusalem to, um, to Samaria, to, um, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And we see that happening now. And the focus now is Antioch at the beginning of this passage. This is in modern day Syria. 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And it shouldn't be confused from the the other Antioch that is later in this passage in chapter 13. There are two Antiochs, one in modern-day Syria, one in western Turkey. And they're two different places. The Antioch that's mentioned here at the beginning of chapter 13 is the third largest city in Rome. It's up to a half a million people, as scholars would say, that were living in at that time. And Saul and Barnabas have set up shop there. They've been there at least a year, if not longer, teaching. And a great many people have come to hear the gospel. And truly, it must have been an amazing place to be, this church in Antioch. And they just give us some hints of how cool it is here at the beginning of chapter 13. One, it's a very benevolent place. This church in Antioch gave to churches that were in need throughout um, the Roman Empire, specifically to Jerusalem as Saul and Barnabas went down to give the gift down to Jerusalem, a church in need. So this is a very benevolent place. Also, they have an awesome branding. It's the first time that actually they're called Christians was in Antioch. That's when the term Christian came into being, was in this place. So they've got awesome branding. And also they've got these big names of people that are there. I mean, the list of people here are pretty amazing. You've got Lucius the Syrian. He's the first bishop of North Africa. You've got Simeon, who many scholars argue is the same one that carried the cross of Christ. You have Manan, a friend and foster brother, some would say, of King Herod. The Herod that sent uh, Jesus in the trial. And he is now a Christian with these people. You have Barnabas, who is one of the major leaders of uh, the Christian movement outside of Jerusalem. The one that sold all his land to give to the church. The one that discipled Saul as he became a Christian. And also you see, of course, Paul Saul the one that writes the majority of the New Testament, also in this group. And they're all together with this church, and they're all worshiping together. It's the place to be. Seems like Luke is okay about name-dropping here at the beginning, about how amazing the different people are that are there. So I thought, I might as well name-drop too, right? If he does it, I can do it too, right? So I was uh, reading a biography of Dallas Willard, and this is something I didn't know when I was reading it, is that Dallas Willard went to UW-Madison and if you don't know Dallas Willard, he's a famous Christian author, taught at USC. He's written books that many evangelicals have read. Uh, famous mind of the 20th century. And he went to UW-Madison and he was a part of a Bible study at, it said, a someone's house uh, in the university neighborhood. And the person house is John Alexander my wife's grandfather and the guys also in the Bible study was a guy named David Noble who is also a PhD philosophy student at the UW-Madison and also these other UW faculty Aaron's grandfather was a professor of geography at UW so all these guys and their wives are together in this Bible study some great minds and I'm like man how cool would it have been To be a part of that group of people studying the Bible together. We're going to go back to that in a little bit. But here is that kind of group here. Worshipping together. Fasting together. And something happens. The Holy Spirit comes and speaks to this group. To the church. A few observations about how the Holy Spirit speaks in this. One. And mentioned again, the Spirit speaks. We've seen throughout Acts that God the Father calls people to things, that Jesus calls people to things, and here we see the Spirit calls people to things. A great emphasis of the Trinity, of all three working together. Second, we can't assume of how the Spirit actually talks. We don't know here if it's audibly. We don't know if it's internally to people. We don't know through it's through a sign. That's not the important thing. We just know the Spirit is speaking to the church. Next we see there's a dual call. It says, What set apart for me Barnabas and Saul speaking to the church for the work to which I have called them. So there are two calls. One, the church speaking, uh, speaking to the church to set apart Saul and Barnabas. And also that Saul and Barnabas have also already received the call to do this kind of work. In classic Christian ease, we call this the internal and external calls. The internal call is that calling from the Spirit to say, Maybe I should be doing ministry work. Maybe I should be called to be doing something. And then that external call that you have people outside in the church encouraging you and seeing the gifts that you have to do these things. I think both are important as we send out missionaries and send out work that there's both the internal call that God has called you to it and also a confirmation of the church to send people out. So you see both the importance of God working individually in people and you see the importance of the church in working and calling people to tasks. And that's what happens here in Acts. But I think the, probably the most important observation I would make about this is that the church is not self-focused. I mean, they could have this spiritual high. We got these cool people here. We're in this happening city. The gospel is working right here. But they are not just about themselves. Their fasting is not just about, oh, fasting's cool and hip. It helps my gut health and things like that. No, fasting is for a purpose, for God to work. And we see that through their worship and through their fasting, they hear from God to go forward. Yes, great things are happening here, but we want to go Outside of ourselves. Some might wonder why go to Cyprus, right? There's already a church there, as is mentioned earlier. Why go to Cyprus? Because the gospel just needs to continue to go out. It's really the beauty of the church in Antioch that God sends people from it. Its health is seen as it's not insular, but it moves out. A great internal hindrance of the gospel is comfort. But we see here in Antioch, that does not stop them from spreading the gospel, even losing two of their beloved people, Barnabas and Saul, to go forward to preach the gospel. I think some of us, sometimes we forget when we come to church and we're not aware that there are people here in our church, and people that have been along with us in the journey of Christianity that have set aside their comforts to share the gospel with you, to listen to you, to pray with you, to teach you. They have left places in families. They have left comfortable places to share the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that to puff up Certain people in the church or ministers in the church. I do that to show you that the gospel has taken hold in people's life. And it's real. When people make sacrifices to leave other places that they might have been for a long time. And leave those communities to come to new places. It is a sacrifice. To spread the gospel. But these people have been changed. Maybe you Have been changed. To know that there is a savior. Jesus. That gave up greater names. That can ever be here on earth. The host of heaven. Dwelling with his father. He gave up that kind of worship community. To come and dwell among us. To even suffer. To even go to the cross for us. If Jesus was sent in that way, how much more should we respond to to the way that Jesus came to us, to us to make sacrifices for others because we're united with him? David Noble, if you don't know that name, uh, he was the one that was in that Bible study with Aaron's grandfather. He ended up going uh, to Manitou Springs in Colorado And he bought this old house up in the mountains, like it's in the foothills. And he just started housing teenagers and college students to learn about Jesus and how to engage philosophies of secularism. And that's what he ended up doing after he got his speech. He left the Cush kind of jobs to go and do that. I got to experience that myself. I got to learn under David Noble. I had no idea he knew my, um, Aaron's grandfather at that time. And learn under him as he teaches thousands of students through the years. Dallas Willard left his job at UW-Madison to go to USC and teach at that university and write books and travel and do all those things. Aaron's grandfather left his post as the head of the geography department, E.W. Madison, to go take um, charge of an organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship that was struggling at that time and also wrestling with some of the things of dropping some of the authority of scripture, that he went in to bolster that organization and left his job to go do that at InterVarsity. These are people that said, oh yeah, It's cool and hip, that we're in this Bible study with some great minds, but it's not about that. It's about going out and sharing the gospel, leaving our comfort to be able to go and do what needs to be done. I'm going to be honest, I think we have a really cool church I really do. I like to brag about it among other pastors I'm around here in the Valley. I got some really cool people I'm around. And I can name drop how cool you are to other people that you're smart and caring, that you love God and you love others. It's amazing to be in this community. What would it look like for some of us to be set apart for missions? Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to send people out. It's hard. When we sent Josh out, Josh is a very close friend that I love dearly, that I loved ministering with, and he was amazing to do it with. And when he left, it was super hard. And also, we had to leave, James left with Josh, which I really didn't want to happen. But we think that's probably what needs to happen and James, whom some of you know, James Lima, he also went with Josh. And now, you know what's amazing? Is that James, Josh went to go plant a church in Oshkosh, you know, Livingstone. James is going, leaving Livingstone this summer to go plant a church in Stevens Point. And you know what? I get to talk to Josh about this, and it's hard. It's hard for the church to have James leave but it's not just about them it's about the gospel going forward maybe some of you here should go plant another church in the valley maybe some of you are called to reach places in the valley that are not being reached that we haven't touched to go plant a church one thing we do with our denomination they have this plan it's called the 1% with mission to the world. And they're encouraging that 1% of every church in our denomination would send people out for world missions. What would it be like to send just maybe just 1% a family from our church, an individual from our church, some people from our church to do international missions? Maybe God's been tugging at your heart. Maybe he's calling you to something like that. Let us know. Let's pray about it together. Let's give a confirmation together as the church and let's send people out in joy, knowing it's not just about us. Let not the comfort of this community hinder us from the gospel going forward. And said, let the health of our community, show that the gospel continues to go forward. Well, we see that those are kind of the internal obstacles that could be to share in the gospel. But there's also some external obstacles. We see that Barnabas and Paul and John Mark also is mentioned. He's mentioned as a helper to go with them. We see John Mark later, there's a conflict between Barnabas and Saul about John Mark, the same John Mark who's the author of the Gospel of Mark, also goes with Barnabas and Saul to Cyprus, an island 100 miles off the coast where Antioch is. And some people wonder why there. Well, one, Barnabas is from Cyprus originally. It had a large Jewish population. Then The strategy for Paul, as we see, as it started here in Cyprus, is the first places they go is the synagogues, probably because there's some more common ground there, some historical understanding of the Messiah, and that's the first place they go. Also, Cyprus is a melting pot of the nations. Egyptians lived there, Phoenicians, Greeks, Assyrians, Persians, it was a microcosm of the Mediterranean, all there on this island, and that's really what the gospel's Hears about. Now, spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. So, first they're on the east, and it says they go through the whole island, and they end up at the end in the southwest part of Cyprus. And there's two characters that they run across. One, Sergius Paulus. He's the proconsul, meaning he's kind of the governor, the kind of the head guy in the region by the Roman Empire. Actually, there's In the museum in Cyprus to this day, there is some stones that have his name on it, dated to that time. This is a real person. And then we see that the significance of him is that he is a Gentile, right? That the gospel is going to the Gentiles. We see that other Gentiles, like Cornelius, that were engaged uh, by uh, uh, the apostles, that they had some influence by Jews of because some basic understanding of histor- the historical nature of the Messiah. But this one did not. His influence came from this other character that was not too credible. And you can see that the Gospels continue now to go to people that are far from understanding um, the historical nature of the Messiah. And so this character that is kind of his court wizard, you might call him, is Bar-Jesus, meaning... The son of salvation. It does make sense that if that's his name, Bar-Jesus, that the name that um, Paul gives him, son of the devil, what he labels him, would make sense. Instead of him being son of salvation, really Paul sees him as the son of the devil. He is not the son of, of a Messiah message. He's giving a false message. Gives a little bit more understanding of why that's what he said to him. Also, you see he's labeled another name, Elmus, which really is here they say it's uh, the translation meaning, you know, a magician. Uh, the actual Greek translation is to be wise, and there's irony in that very name as we see. We see that the typical things that this kind of person would do is he would communicate with the dead, that he would use astrology, magical spells, these kind of things to gain an audience and influence. And so this is not the first time we've seen this kind of character in um, the book of Acts. We saw Simon the Sorcerer earlier. It's not going to be the last time we see it. We're going to see the sons of Sceva later on in the book of Acts. We see that this, this kind of interaction is mentioned continuously. Why is this idea of magic and these kind of characters mentioned in Acts, even kind of mentioned even more than paganism is in Acts, I think it's because it's important for the apostles to differentiate what's going on in Christianity and what's going on at that time with magic. The gospel is not simply a conjuring of tricks. Instead, the gospel is real healings. It's the restoration of the kingdom. When Jesus came to heal, he was restoring what was broken. His resurrection shows what we should be and what a new heavens and new earth would look like. It is not, as what Paul describes this kind of thing, as villainy. The Greek also translated unscrupulous. It's the kind of thing where you're using magic and these kind of things to gain power through trickery. Paul mentions that this, going back to Old Testament scriptures... You are making crooked what is straight. This is not wise. No, this is the tainting of the truth. If you could distill what he is doing into something, it's a word we use called syncretism the merging of two religions to corrupt the purity of one. And here, this character, bar Jesus, is corrupting the message. And creating a false message. And part of his threat and why he's upset about this message is because it's a threat to his own livelihood. A threat to his position. When we look at this story, we see that it seems very harsh. Especially the judgment that comes upon this bar Jesus. But the truth is, it's not any different to the harshest that came to Paul. One, Paul opposed God's word, just as Bar-Jesus did. Second, Paul was temporarily blind, and that is what happens here to Bar-Jesus. Third, Paul was led by the hand, and here it says Bar-Jesus, the same happens to him. We see the same things that happened to Paul are not happening to this person. The same harshness and judgment that came to Paul is coming to this person. This is God showing, I think, his judgment and also his hope to work on people. We see what happens to the proconsul because of this. Because of what he sees, he believes and he trusts in the teachings of the Lord. For what happens to Bar-Jesus, we don't know. But I think that's the point. It's trying to leave us hanging. What will Bar-Jesus do with this judgment? With this word that came from the Apostle Paul? What will he do? Will he change his life? Will he see that the way he's gone is wrong? Will he correct it? Okay, that's a little bit of explanation. Hopefully I explained it well. I wonder, when we take mission trips, do we think we're going to have these kind of encounters? (laughs) When we plant churches, when we go overseas, when we talk with people, do we expect these kind of things to happen? Not usually. That's probably not in our mind. That's not the ideal. We think it's going to be pretty peaceful. People are going to be receptive. People want to hear our message. But we see in the first missionary journey, these are the kind of things that the missionaries like Saul and Barnabas encounter. Why is Paul so harsh? I think he's so harsh because he sees that someone is leading another person away from the truth that wants to hear the truth. And that's what the proconsul wants to do. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. And here, Bar-Jesus is trying to lead him away. And that is why Paul is so harsh, to make sure that does not happen. Tell me, who here wants to enter into these kind of conversations? Who likes these kind of conversations? Maybe some of you do, I don't know. I think for most Wisconsinites, um, the idea of these kind of conversations makes our blood pressure kind of raise, doesn't it? Our hearts start beating a little bit more. Like the conflict conversation. Like I didn't live in New York City for a reason. I'm in northern Wisconsin for a reason. To avoid those kind of people. Right? I'm not in Chicago. I'm in Appleton. Right? I could just go about my way and not have to deal with these kind of conversations. You see the pain of these hard conversations did not stop the gospel going forward. These are external threats, but instead of avoiding them, Paul and Barnabas meet them head on. Now hear me, I'm not saying that we should all end up like being in the okay corral, right? That we're just ready and loaded, right? Let's just start firing away at people that say things, right? We have to realize we are not the Apostle Paul, okay? Okay. This is the beginning of Christianity going to the nations, right? So this is pretty clear what has to be done. We should not be calling down curses from God upon people, right? But there are clear dangers of syncretism. The idea of combining two religions to come to a false religion. And it even happens in our society today. Since our blood pressure is already up about conflict, why don't I just go for it? Sound good? You ready? Okay, great. Okay. We do have a new defibrillator back there, so we're going to be okay. Hopefully everyone's going to be fine. But it's there. <clears throat> Let's Let's go for the left first. Some of you might be more left than right, you know? That's, we, we do that nowadays. We just polarize people in America. So let's start with people on the left, shall we? Right? I think the syncretism that happens on the left is what I would call the syncretism of self-expressionism. Whatever is going to make you your full self, you engage it no matter what. Typically, the way that we've seen that come out in society more recently is through sexual identity, gender identity, those kind of things. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you who you really are, that is the way that you should go. And the truth is, it's not just secular people saying that. We have many churches embracing that kind of thinking. And really, that's the way Jesus would want it, they would say to embrace your full self whatever it might be that is not the gospel okay the gospel is not embracing yourself it is instead giving up yourself to embrace jesus and the truth is i don't you might struggle with same sex attraction you might struggle with gender dysphoria You might be struggling with those things, and those things are real, and those things are hard to wrestle with. But guess what? You're not the only people that should be struggling. You might not be struggling with those issues, but Christian, I'm here to tell you there are other issues that you think, I just embrace my full self, I'll be fine. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, How you talk about people. Well, that's my full self. That's who I am. I just tell people like it is. No, it's not. Okay? That is sin. Okay? And Jesus is asking you to give yourself to him. To change you and to sanctify you. Even how hard it might be. Okay? That's a hard message to say in our current age, in our current culture, I get it. And maybe when I say that to you right now, you take serious offense to it and it's hard to hear. If you live in corporate America right now, if you go to any university, if you say you stand by the Christian sexual ethic, it's gonna be hard. It's going to be difficult. But that should not stop us from saying what the truth of the gospel is. That God has come to us through Christ to give us a new identity. And that even if I struggle with same-sex attraction, I will commit my life to Him in celibacy. I know it's hard. I know. But our God is good, even in that struggle. Well, I did the left, why don't I do the right? How's that sound, right? How about the flag, the nation, the family? And how we equally make that trump our identity in Christ. I'm all about preserving my rights. And that might be more important than love for enemy. Security is more important than Christ, than sacrifice for the least of these. My children's success is more important than their union with Christ. These are all ways that we make our nation, we make these national identities, we make family and all these things on equal playing with, field with Jesus or even higher. I'm not saying these things are bad. What I am saying is many times we syncretize them with Jesus. That is not the gospel. Our kingdom is not America, our kingdom is the new heavens and new earth that will come. And its banner is under no president, but its banner is under Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you right now, there are churches that are telling you the opposite. And they are leading people away from the truth of the gospel. Again, we should not let these external threats keep us from telling the truth of what the gospel is. You know, one story that doesn't seem to come up during Holy Week, we you know talk about Good Friday and Passover, but one story that happened during Holy Week that is traditionally in the church celebrated on Monday is Christ going to the temple. Do you know what he did when he was in the temple on Holy Week? He flipped over some tables, and he got really upset. Do you guys know why Jesus got so upset? You know, the place where these people were setting up, you know, selling sacrifices and things like that, that place was called the Court of the Gentiles. That non-Jews could come and see the hope of what the Messiah would bring. And they were being crowded out of those place by all these different things that Jews were setting up. Jesus was so upset because they were crowding out the space for the Gentiles to hear the message of hope. That's why he flipped those tables. That is why Paul is so upset and he deserves to be. There was a hindrance to people hearing the message of the gospel. Jesus wants to come and free you to be able to hear what the message of the good news is. You want to find your true self? You want to find out who you really are? And to really be free in who you are? It's in Him. That's how you'll be free. Let all those hindrances go. A perfect family. The right political party. The perfect picket fence. That's not getting you in. That should not be an obstacle for you to trust in Christ. Don't let money... Or people's perfection that look you might think in the church keep you from knowing that it is the gospel plus nothing.